This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Suitcase and The Scribe with award-winning journalist Scott Burnside and former NHL goaltender Mike McKenna, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Hey everybody, Scott Burnside back for another edition of The Suitcase and the Scribe. Mike McKenna, home in St. Louis. Last week, Mike, we did this. I was in Tampa getting ready for game six. And one of the great parts of my trip to Tampa, highlight, never mind the overtime drama, never mind any of that. The highlight of my trip to Tampa, face-to-face running into our first guest today, Colby Armstrong, longtime NHLer. Man of the people, multimedia star. It was great to see you in Tampa, Colby, and thank you for coming to hang out with us today. Yeah, thanks, uh, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, we were t- we were catching up just before we came on about ne- not actually chatting with, not, not meeting face-to-face yet. So this is really cool. And meeting face-to-face with you is cool because, you know, since quitting hockey and, and living in Pittsburgh, you know, they've gone on some, you know, it started off with back-to-back cups for me, and I, I got to see you know, kind of the traveling circus that is, you know, the writers of this league and some of the media members of this league and uh, our roots go back to Atlanta. And then when I played there and then of course, you know, now just on the NHL circuit type of thing. So Pittsburgh, because of those years, I got to see you all the time as everyone was kind of tracking the pens all the way to the final, but it's been some time now, hasn't it buddy? It's been some time since we have seen more, more more often than not, most people face to face. So yeah, it's been, it it was fun to see you there. Feels like that's the case. It's just, we go a year or two years and all of a sudden it feels so exciting just to be in the same room and have presence around people. Like it changed so much. Like I remember those Atlanta days, not very well because I got lit up several times against your club. Um, I remember Kovalchuk putting a hat trick past me on my birthday. Uh, I remember playing against Rich Peverly on your team. And <laughs> so those weren't the greatest trips for me, but you know, you mentioned being able to, to see Pittsburgh go on a run. And obviously now that you're based there and you, you do media all across, which to me is impressive how you're on the go quite a bit. Um, when you think about this Pittsburgh team kind of in retrospect of this season in general, where do you think that team is, is going? Where do you, how do you evaluate what they accomplished this year? Because there's, there's just so many question marks surrounding that lineup uh, in this off season. Yeah, there is, there, there is for sure. And um, yeah, it's been, it was, it's been an interesting year. And I think an in- interesting year, especially in Pittsburgh, just because of the situation. I mean, you know, Ron Hextall, Brian Burke, um, you know, Fenway Sports Group buys a team this year. No Gino, no Sid to start the season due to injuries. 
amongst others scattered throughout and COVID illnesses scattered throughout to key players. And somehow like, you know, 15 year streak in the playoffs uh, has been pretty, pretty good to the Penguins and, and good to that core group. But um, if there's one season that like I went into, uh, you know, in the last few years going, okay, what's going to happen. I was, I would guess like, I would have guessed the start of the season without Sid and Gino that this would be the year that maybe the streak is snapped and uh, they don't make the playoffs. And of course they come out and, and, you know, prove, make me look like an idiot. And anytime I thought they would lose if they didn't have enough guys in the lineup or enough quality player, um, you know, Mike Sullivan has these guys dialed in, they call someone up and um, you know, they find a way to get through a tough stretch throughout the season. So um, although they did falter down the end of the season, I think uh, maybe running out of steam a little bit, some injuries and others and Geno suspension, which you can always possibly count on. <laughs> uh, they made the playoffs again and possibly, you know, could be playing still right now had they, you know, the Rangers been able to survive like they did up three to one in the series with the Penguins. So, yeah, it's an interesting year. It's, it, it's, and it's going to be, I think, a more interesting summer. And where is this team going? Um, I think time will tell. I don't know if Fenway Sports Group, you know, likes Ron Hextall or wants to, you know, you know, you, all, you know, when there's new ownership, that a lot of things could change. Of course, um, I think that's always on the table. Uh, I know they're going to do their, their, you know, look at, you know, top to bottom under the hood of the Penguins and what they want to do with this team and uh, kind of the direction where it's going. But, um, you know, Gino, Latang, Rust, Raquel, yeah. Um, Smith, am I missing someone? It's quite a few, isn't it? Um, yeah, Rodriguez is in the mix. I don't know. As well. That's like a pretty big group well. of like uh, veteran guys that are are pretty important to this team. And you know, Raquel just picked up the trade deadline, but I think a real good player. Um, all those guys are UFAs at the end of the year. Cool. I mean, you you a you. You were Sid's road roommate. Uh, you were great. You and I chatted at the trade deadline. You you were part of the one of the biggest deals in Penguins history with the uh, Pascal Dupuis and Marion Hosa coming aboard. But you know, so you 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 know Chris Letang and Evgeny yeah. Malkin, and obviously you and Sid are pals, and you understand the relationships there. And there's a ton of emotion connected with those players and their relationships and the community, as you mentioned, you know, we're 16 straight years in the playoffs. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, but at some point, it, like what does, I, yeah. I, and I don't know that anyone has the answer for it, but Fenway sports is, you know, at some point they're, they're going to give Ron Hextall or whoever the GM is a mandate. How, what, what's the future for this team? And I wonder for you, cause you understand it so well, how difficult is it to separate the emotion from the, you know, the business reality out of it? If Mal- if Malkin talked about it yesterday in their closeout, basically, you know, these are my brothers, this is my home, second home, but I, I still am a good hockey player and I'll play good hockey somewhere else. I'm yeah. paraphrasing. What's it like, you know, you're in the middle of it kind of, what's it like to try and separate the emotion from the reality of, of business in the NHL? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think Mike can probably speak to this too. It's hard. I think hockey is an emotional game. And I think especially as players, it's, you know, it's about passion, emotion, and um, how you feel about a certain place. And, you know, Mike and I have played in a few different places, and I'm sure we gravitate to one place more than all the others. And it's because we felt good there. And we felt like, you know, that, you know, 
that that was our home. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm back in Pittsburgh. I loved it here. I love playing here. I have great memories here. I have, you know, I was drafted here. This is where it kind of started. I, uh, I feel good here. And I think those players have been here for so long, um, that they probably, you know, they likely feel like this is, this is their home. And, and yes, they're getting older. And I think Gino's presser the other day was, you know, pretty real. Cause I think Gino too is an emotional guy too. And he's, I think his interviews also are like probably the most fire interviews in the NHL. Um, but uh, you know, he said, listen, if they want to get some new blood, they want to go younger. That's fine. Like I get it, you know, I'm going to be okay. And I think he knows he's in a position and that he's, you know, I don't know if he had his best year, but I think he thinks, you know, there's more there to give, uh, you know, with his game. But at the end of the day, um, if you could put everything aside and the business part of hockey aside, I'm sure he, he said he'd love to retire a penguin. Um, now, is that the reality? That's what's going to happen. I think Berkey and uh, Hexy and, and the hockey side were all brought in to make some tough decisions. Uh, just, you know, it, the reality of where the, where this team's at. And look, they've gone through it before and Mike had a, uh, opportunity to be, you know, around the golden Knights and, you know, work with, uh, around Mark Andre Fleury and, and mm-hmm. listen, they had Matt Murray come in and, you know, he was their goaltender. He was younger and we all know what happens. You get a guy, he's a little cheaper. He's a little younger. Okay. Well, how are we going to free up some stuff? And, you know, they had no, no worry about, you know, getting rid of Mark Andre Fleury then. Um, so I kind of feel like, you know, you see this when we all talk about the emotion of our favorite guys and our core group guys, but it happened to flurry here. And you got to think down the line that something's got to give for this team with a plan on how they're going to, you know, revamp or, or gain draft picks or start building through the draft because I think they saved their first round pick this year. Did they not? And did mm-hmm. they get rid of it on the Raquel trade? I can't remember, but I knew it was like a big mandate. Like Hextall wanted to keep the first round pick for the first time in like, I don't know how many years. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride of going for it. 16 years and playoffs pretty good. Three cups from this core group. Pretty good. Um, yeah. We'll see. It'll be interesting this summer. Wanted to stick on the goaltending a little bit, not surprisingly, I know with me, but uh, you know, you mentioned flower and the, and the unique circumstances that saw him go to Vegas and, and man, in the back of our heads, we're all thinking, wouldn't it be cool to see him come back home to Pittsburgh? And, uh, and I'd love to see that happen. But my, my overarching thought about the goaltending in, in Pitt is Tristan Jari's resurgence this year. He was mm-hmm. fan. I thought the first half of the year, he was playing at a Vezino level. I mean, within consideration, and and I don't think he fell off much throughout the year. Obviously, had to battle injury to get back into the lineup. But to me, a key part of it is the relationship with Andy Kyoto, the goalie yeah. coach now of the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Colby, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you crossed paths with Kyoto at some point, and if oh, yeah. not, have at least you know you've been around him quite a bit. So, uh, from somebody who doesn't know Jari or Kyoto on a personal level. What do you think that relationship's been like and being able to coax the best game out of Tristan Jari and also to see Casey DeSmith's game rise throughout the season? Yeah, I, I'm a great guy to bring up. I don't think I don't think Tristan Jari got talked about nearly enough on like the bigger, you know, grand scheme, the bigger stage of the NHL. Of course, he was in the All-Star game. He was in the All-Star game last year too, but he was there due to an injury. Uh, so he kind of got like thrown in there. I thought uh, he was probably the most consistent penguin from start to finish this season. And of course, after his playoffs, you know, previously he, he had a lot to, I think a lot to prove and, and had to show that he could be the guy. And, 
um, you know, be the horse and take the starting job and be in the crease majority of the nights and, and have that consistency within his game. So he was a rock. I mean, the guy was an absolute stud this year, the way he played, he was the backbone of the team. Um, and then down the stretch, of course, uh, you know, the foot injury and uh, missing time and coming back from ga- for game seven, it was weird, right? Like you go from the way he kind of blundered himself out of the playoffs last year with his team mm. to, you know, the fan base and the media going, Oh, he will see. Uh, he's having a good year up until wherever, you know, we'll see what he does in the playoffs or yeah. Okay. He's an all-star. Let's see if he can really make a count in the playoffs to, you know, him getting injured and not being there and and DeSmith and then the Ming coming in and stealing and everyone going, come, can, when's, when's Jari coming back? We need, Jari. We need this guy. <laughs> We're craving him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They got a little, uh, they, they needed him back pretty bad. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, him and Andy Kyoto, I think Andy Kyoto too is, I, I spent some time playing with him in the minors. Uh, I know he's been around the organization a while and down in Wilkes-Barre, uh, he had some great runs, kind of an undersized goaltender, uh, real thinker, real like uh, thoughtful guy on the mental side and preparation side of things. Um, and is really good with people and a real good communicator. Um, you know, it's been interesting. I've, I've seen him Andy around a few times this year, obviously, and uh, got to talk to him. And, and a lot of the stuff he talks about with his guys is like, they're just their personalities. Like Casey's different than Jari. How did make Casey feel good compared to Jari? What does Casey need to work on? That's different than what Jari needs to work on. If he's not feeling great, it's kind of cool uh, to talk to him about the differences and how he manages them, how he works with them and, and, you know, how he understands them. But he asks like, so he, he talks about some really cool stuff, which is like, kind of like, you know, like kind of like mind bomb type of things. Like even he was talking to my kid one day about hockey and like the questions he was asking him were just like so thoughtful that would make my kid like even go home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I was like watching, I was like, damn, that's different than like I, the way I talked to him. Yeah. So yeah, he's, he's just a really, he's just, he's just a really interesting uh, goal goalie coach. I think in the way that he approaches people from that style and the way he thinks um, and how thoughtful he is individually with each guy, um, you know, with a plan for each guy as well and how to, how to get to them. And of course he had some, you know, I, I had some cool stories about Bennington as well. And, and mm-hmm. before he kind of took off, uh, you know, on the cup run and working with him a little bit in the summer and just the kind of stuff that he shared with me about, it was, it was like all like battle level mental stuff on how to like be this certain guy. And uh, I find that to be super interesting. Cause it's one thing that I sucked at when I was a player is the mental part. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of cool to hear him t- talk these ways, the, the way that he does about, you know, the guys he's working with in particular uh, Jari, of course, who, like I said, had a, had a fantastic season. Yeah. Um, I just, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, Colby because you were, you, you like Mike uh, parachuted into the TNT world uh, during that first <laughs> round and had your first uh, on ice at the bench experience. And I, um, I want to ask you about Tampa, Toronto, and, and obviously uh, what happened in game one between Tampa, Florida, the first of the Battle of Florida games, um, because you'd have a pretty good perspective on that. But just before we get to that, what was that experience like? Mike and I talked about his experience in LA, but what was it like for you oh. that first game? And I think it was in 
was it in Boston? Boston. I was in Boston. That's right. Boston, it's, Carolina. And then you that's a loud into building. Tampa. Oh, Trump. yeah. What was it like? like? I couldn't believe I was getting the opportunity to do. I've always wanted to do this. I, I've only done like act the actual games. Um, probably I think I filled in for Phil Bork this year, who had a close contact with COVID like middle of the season. I got to do about four games. Um, and previous to that, like my first year moving back to Pittsburgh, I got to do uh, color for one game in a preseason game that AT&T Sportsnet, our local station, uh, TV station, got like so many, you know, preseason games. So I got to do it as like a, a tandem color analyst with Bob Erie then was my first ever time. But I've mostly been like locked in a dark building in uh, studios doing intermissions or so I'm, I'm not even close to the rank. Usually I'm like in a building <laughs> far, far away that people are like, Hey man, are you in Edmonton tonight? I'm like, no, I'm in a, like a, I'm in a building in downtown Toronto and make, they think that it makes you look like, makes me look like I'm in Edmonton, but I have no, not even close. So <laughs> the fact that I got to actually do the game, which is something I really like I've always wanted to do and try it and do it on a national level for TNT and then be down between the benches I honestly felt like I was in the NHL again. It was like a rush. I couldn't fall asleep after the yes. game. Winding down after, like as a player, it was. I was right there. I, I time when the game went by so fast, like it was just zipping through. I, I don't know. It was like the greatest thing ever. I, I was like the. It was like the best thing. I don't know how to explain it. Like, did it? I was did it not feel? Yeah. Did it not feel like you'd been called up to the NHL again? Because to me, it yeah. did. And, yeah. and I never expected this opportunity for myself. Like I hoped it for it. I, I've done my best to build for this chance, but to actually get there on the big stage and the first time is playoffs on national television. What could go wrong? You know what I mean? Because, <laughs> <laughs> dude, like I'm, I'm like you, man. Like I've done yeah, about a dozen games of color before in my life, but I was thankful that last year when I was in Vegas working for them, I did get to do. 10 games of televised color for the American league team, the Henderson silver Knights, yeah, awesome. man, without that experience, I think it would have been kind of tough, but like, did you, did you have any trouble finding the rhythm right off the bat or did it come pretty naturally to you? Um, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I did, to be honest with you uh, in the first period of the Boston Carolina game, I'm working, well, I'm working with John Forslund and Keith Jones and uh, what a crew too, I'm man. Not, they're fantastic. Like, I, I mean, I got so lucky to be able to work with those guys and, you know, be under their wing. And, but uh, the first period I didn't know, cause it's not like you're sitting next to the people in the booth and you can kind of tap a guy on the leg and be like, Hey, and then you can chime in, you know, or you got a comment, you can let someone know, or you make eye contact, you know, how the communication is, you know, you just kind of give like a little head nod. Like I got something here. Uh, I was down there. I didn't know. And I, and of course I'm with John Forslund. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want to step on this legend's toes and cut off one of his calls. Or like, am I supposed to talk right now? Are they going to run like a commercial? Like just getting the rhythm of how it's all laid out. And of course the producers are amazing in your ear that kind of direct you through everything. But uh, yeah, Johnny Forslund and, and Keith Jones are just amazing teammates at helping you out and bringing you in. And I got to say in the first period, uh, our producer uh, opened up our mic, our, our thing so we could communicate because I'm down there, of course. And I was just like, way to go, Army. How'd you feel? And I was like, hey, listen, like, you know, uh, I, I don't want to. I'm just nervous to step on the toes. And, and Jonesy's like, no, man, just get in there. And then John Forslund was kind of like, you know, like, 
I can feel it. Like I've been doing this a while, you know, it's okay. You can get in there. You're not going to step on me. Don't feel that way at all. So it totally put me at ease for the rest of the game to get going. And of course the glass breaks off and falls on a guy's head, a referee run over by a shovel driver. I'm on ice level. (laughs) I I have to talk the game just went haywire crazy in Boston. So uh, I kind of just sit in my head, like no joke. I was like, F it. I'm going for it, man. I'm just going to like, talk like with the boys, like how I would calling and talking about a game. And it was amazing. I was like, I was on cloud nine. Um, yeah, Mike, I, I was, I was, I was losing it. It was, it was so great. And then to be able to do it in Tampa, by the way, I don't know how you're, how was LA like in Tampa, the, the box that I was in is huge. And <laughs> Dude. in Austin, I was pushed so far back in, in, in Tampa, it's not as far back. And it's so big that like, I'm literally on, I feel like I'm on the ice. Like I was like, this is, <laughs> I was loving it. I, I couldn't even sleep. My, my flights were like at six in the morning. I was getting picked up at like 4am and I would fall asleep at like two 30. Like I would after a regular hockey yeah. game it was awesome. I was in a glass case of emotion. My box yeah. was so small in LA. They'd sold seats next to us. And I was just, I couldn't move like uh dry idol. And I'm not sure who from LA came and collided right in front of me. And I got hit on the wrist so hard by Dreisaitl's stick at the beginning. And I like oddly loved it. Like I missed the pain of being a goaltender, yeah. as strange as that sounds, you know, you know, this feeling like, yeah, and, and that got me so into the game. But the, what you said about your crew at Jonesy and Forsland, I had the same experience, man. He, Brett Hedekin and, and Randy Hahn, like Hedekin especially was just so positive and welcoming. Yeah. And uh, they made it super comfortable for me in that instance. So, um, I just, I had a blast, man. I'm glad you did too. Look good, feel good, play good. The old hockey uh, mantra and uh, the same goes. It's it's amazing what good teammates can do for someone and make them feel comfortable and confident. Scott, you know, you just got to wear your best suit, right, Scott? Yeah, <laughs> well, that's not re- that's not in the writer vernacular. I can tell you that. But so uh, so Cole, the, the great thing, a you played in Toronto, so you understand that. Yeah. So you understand the dynamic as you watch that series on close itself out. Obviously, Tampa winning in overtime in Game Six at home, and then closing out the series um, in Toronto. Really emotional for the Leafs. You know, have, still haven't won a playoff series since '04. Yeah. But I, I want to jump. I don't know if you wa- were able to catch any or much of that first game in, in South Florida. Yeah. I just, I wondered if, especially in old Braden point, I wondered yeah. if maybe Tampa would be like just a bit gassed. Right. I mean, and Kucherov, I thought looked a little off towards the end of that uh, series. And yet yeah, he did. Tampa storms in there, score three power play goals to come from behind. And I, like, I don't know whether you surprised it, but what maybe what you expected out of Tampa seeing how they, what they were like at the end of that first series against Toronto. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting. We're hearing like, uh, you know, maybe possibly Kucherov wasn't feeling his best through the end of that series. I, I kind of heard that last yeah. night. So yeah. I thought that was interesting because when I was doing game six, he would like come on the ice and like touch the puck and kind of bumble it or turn it over. And then just like bad body language and just take himself. He'd pull himself right off the ice. Yeah. So he looked, I was like, what's going on with this guy? This mm-hmm. guy's so nasty. And then he's just like, it looks like he doesn't care, you know? <laughs> and then you can see what he, he's unbelievable, obviously. And he looked to be, have an extra step again uh, last night yeah. uh, against the Panthers in game one. I was more blown away with like the Panthers. I, I couldn't believe, and I, I mean, I couldn't believe how they came out at home kind of, and how it wasn't, you know, yeah. uh, more aggressive or more, um, high flying and maybe a credit to the Tampa Bay lightning for game planning to kind of shut it down a little bit. But um, 
Yeah, I was more, I was more amazed at, and, and the atmosphere in the rink. Like I tweeted last night, I'm like, this is a, like the worst atmosphere. Second round, game one. Yeah. I know the Heat were playing, but it was just like the rink was pretty full, just kind of dead in there. There was no life. I said they got to bring Kodak Black back for the game and get, him, get him going again. Ramp get it up. Fired up. Yeah, get a big <laughs> disco ball hanging from the thing, spin it around, get the in-house entertainment going, get sirens going. I don't know what you got to do, but you got to get the atmosphere because uh, I know, Mike, you know how much the players feed off of that. It's just like yeah. exhilarating feeling, and, and it can carry you through you know, times even when your legs are probably a little heavier, it's a little harder. So uh, the atmosphere needs to be, I think, a little bit better. But Tampa, they're just – you know, you know, Coop always says it. He's like, I'm not worried about my guys. My guys will be ready to go. He said that in, in, in the Toronto series. Yeah. Uh, he, he always kind of, he has the trust in his guys that they know how to play and know how to, you know, the right recipe to play up to, you know, a certain standard or a certain game plan and how to beat quality opponent. And, you know, they got through Toronto and, um, you know, had guys stepping up all over the place, blocked shots like mad, like just heart of a lion type of thing mixed with the skill and certain players and depth guys when they need it. And, and they did it again in, in game one against Florida. So Florida's going to have to get it going, really get it going and bounce back. And I mean, you know, what are they haven't scored a power play goal yet in the playoffs? Pretty amazing. Right. But uh, I don't know if it'll get any easier against Tampa. Uh, <laughs> but I just think the overall energy and, and craziness that we were used to seeing from the Panthers game all season, it was just kind of, it, it had like a, it had like a no t- like bad, like no, no flavor, you know, there's just like no flavor to their game. It was blah. Yeah. I need some seasoning. I need a little salt on that. I think yeah. right? and, and like you, you touched on it, man. Like how much the crowd can matter. Like it was bonkers in Colorado last night that came yeah. across so loud on television. Yeah. And I think, you know, the avalanche fed off of it. I think the blues fed off of it too. That's just, that produces better hockey. It's way more easier to be engaged when the fans are involved. So um, Colby, we appreciate you joining us, giving us plenty of your time. Got one last one before you go looking at these other matchups in the second round. um, We've already discussed, you know, Tampa and Florida a little bit, but of the other three series, which one of those do you find the most compelling? Ooh, um, I, I, I guess I have to go just with battle of Alberta. Um, you know, Carolina Rangers. Uh, okay. Like it'll be, it'll be kind of fun to check it out and everything, but uh, I think just two contrasting styles of games as well. But I think the battle of Alberta just to me is I'm from Saskatchewan. So maybe it's mm-hmm. a little more interesting. It hasn't happened since 91. Of course I was only nine years old last time that happened. <laughs> um, but I, I just think both their teams and, and how good Calgary was this year and how Edmonton, you know, what they've been up, up and down and, and through with a new coach and then taking off and being one of the best teams in the league and um, kind of just the possibility of them meeting in, in the second round and like what the first round meant to make like that happen for hockey and for <laughs> those two teams. I think just puts more on it. I think the fan bases make it really interesting too, because it's not going to be like Florida in those rinks in this series. It's going to be crazy. They have like the red lot. They have everything going outdoors in Edmonton. Like it's just nasty. It's crazy. It's, it's got like the captain of of the, of the senators is throwing out t-shirts for his brother in Calgary. Like it's (laughs) (laughs) the Kachuk cam. They had the Kachuk cam in the building. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's awesome. So, 
it, it it's I think it's peaking a lot of attention, obviously, with you know the year Goudreau's had, you know, anytime. And you know, Mike Smith has played both sides of this battle through his career. Um, you know, McDavid Drysidle and just the rivalry that the history that this rivalry is. So uh I know my my text is my phone was blowing up, just like if you know, can Edmonton win this game seven? We need battle of Alberta, you know, can Calgary win this? Can we need, we need this, this to happen and everything just slotted out perfectly and everyone was going nuts. So I'm, I'm really interested in watching that and, and, and seeing how that goes. And um, that's probably piques my interest the most out of every single series, to be honest. Uh, it's going to be good stuff, my friend, great theater. And it's, it's always great to catch up with you, whether it's, remotely like this or yeah. certainly better in person as, as it was last week. And who knows what, uh, what may come between now and the end of the season, but thanks for coming and hanging out with us. And uh, it's always great to catch up my friend. It's a, it's a real treat. Yeah. It's awesome. Mike, Bernie. Amazing. I know hockey's a small world. Mike mentioned he played, spent some time playing with my brother on a team even. So it's kind of funny how things go around, but Mo, uh, more than likely we will all run into each other at the same time in an arena in the near future. I imagine just because of the way things work. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Look, we look forward to that. My friend, Mike, honest <clears throat> Colby's one of those guys. If we were doing a four hour podcast, we, we would be golden. And it, I, it's so great that, you know, his brother and all that kind of stuff and, and that you had the shared experiences of being you know, between the benches during the playoffs. So that's, that's very cool. And you, we're not done. This is a special day on. Uh, this is Suitcase. a great day. Double guest day with Bob Stoffer, longtime voice of the Edmonton Oilers to come in and close out the show talking about the battle of Alberta. So we're going to, we're heavy off the top and we're heavy off the bottom. It's, it's, it's going to be a great show in the middle though. Let's talk mm. a little, it, you know, Colby mentioned Colby, uh, Colby mentioned the Jordan Bennington, uh, of course, the other series that got going, um, first game of round two in Denver last night. And I know you're following this one really closely. Um, man, that was an interesting tilt. If you just looked at Colorado winning 3-2 in overtime, great goal from Josh Manson to end it for the Avs. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, that score um, favors St. Louis in, in a great way. Jordan Bennington out of his mind last night. I'm looking yeah. Final shots on goal, 54-25 for the Avs. Oh, my God, Jordan Bennington was good. And he was unbelievable. Yeah, I just wonder what you make of that. And and Blues have got some work to do if they want to – and especially because I picked them for the upset. The Blues have got mm -hmm. some work to do to make me look good. Here's my biggest takeaway from it is that, yeah, the Avalanche crushed the Blues last night in just about every statistical category. And Jordan Bennington played the best game I've seen him play since the 2019 Stanley Cup run. Yeah. But I would caution anybody to think that this is going to be a predictor of an entire series. Um, you know, Avalanche had so much rest. They had a full week off. St. Louis had just finished a big series against Minnesota. Sure. They had a few days, but still seven game series. They're getting their defensemen back and healthy. Yeah. And, and it sounds like I'm making excuses here, but they're playing at altitude and that's real. And you're trying to catch your breath for the first half of the game and the first half of the first period. And that's really when things favor Colorado. So I, I look at all those intangibles of the game and think, yeah, St. Louis didn't deserve to get that to overtime, but Bennington held the fort for them and gave them a chance and made them believe. And the flip side of this is that 
I really remember last year's second round series between the Colorado Avalanche and Vegas Golden Knights where Colorado waxed the Knights 7-1 in the first game of the series. They went on to win game two, and then they lost four straight. So let's put a pause here and say this is a seven-game series. But if Colorado plays like that consistently with that much pace and with that much intensity – because Scott, they were, man, they were hitting. They were, I mean, Nazem Kadri was, he may have missed the net 35 times last night, but he was awesome. Okay. <laughs> and um, I, I just think Colorado, the way they looked was, they looked unbeatable, frankly. And, but the, but they almost did get beat. <laughs> so this is playoff hockey, as you know. I mean, we've seen crazier things happen, but what was, what was your impression of it? Did you, did you think that St. Louis, did things that they can be proud of in the next game, or do you think they've got to look at the look themselves in the mirror and, and turn this thing around? Yeah, no, I, and you know what? I think your point's an excellent one. And yeah, you know, they had, you know, relatively the same, um, you know, yes, not, you know, um, the Avs sweeping Nashville. Yes, it took St. Louis six games over Minnesota. So there's a little bit of disparity there. I, I, but I think your analogy and bringing up last year is really important because. This Blues team is different than the team that got waxed in the first round by uh, Colorado last year. But I guess what really impressed me um, is that it wasn't necessarily the big guns, right? I mean, I thought mm. Landeskog was really good last night. Um, but, you know, you've got Nichushkin, uh scores a goal for the Avs last night. You know, Landeskog had two assists. Kadri had an assist. Uh, McKinnon and an assist, but it's, it's, you know, Josh Manson and Samuel Gerrard score from the back end. I, mm-hmm. I just, I was impressed by the Avs overall game and it wasn't just one line. And it, you know, when we have 54 shots, you got a lot of guys going. So that's, they what only it, had two Arturi, players that didn't record a shot. Only two. Yeah. Again, I've always, I've, I think Arturi Lekkonen has been such a great ad, you know, listen, Josh Manson, he's the, He's the, you know, sort of the, the headliner of the ads made by Joe Sackick at the trade deadline. I thought Arturi Lekkonen was just such an important player because he, I think he's the kind of player that they didn't have when they let that two nothing lead slip away against Vegas. Mm-hmm. Somebody with a little bit of meat to their game, play both sides of the puck can do whatever you want him to do. He, I, he's been a great fit there. And I thought he was really good again last night. So yeah, I. But I'm with you. Listen, we we. I think there's a tendency to overstate, you know, what happens in game one of a series because you're excited about it. Um, but definitely, the Blues are going to have to find a way to put more pucks on mm-hmm. Darcy Comper. And you know, I, I I still think that's a that's an that's a part of the equation. I'm still waiting to see, you know, what happens when the Blues really bring it where does Darcy Cumper fit into that mm-hmm. equation? So I'm with you on, on that part of it. I see that part. Uh, you know, you mentioned Valerie Nichushkin. Like this is a guy who's only several years removed from not scoring a goal in the regular season for the Dallas stars and being picked up scrap. heap, picked up off the scrap heap by Joe Sackick with a Hoper contract, like to see what happens and his evolution, 25 goal scorer this year in the regular season he is playing first line now. Yeah. Okay. And that's allowed the Colorado Avalanche to split up that top unit. You don't have to have Landis, Scott, McKinnon, and Rand and play together now. You split them up, you make the team even deeper. And I really thought that this series was going to be won by each team's third line. 
I really believe that because the top ones I thought would cancel out. Ryan O'Reilly played McKinnon really hard. McKinnon edged him last night, but uh, really strong defense from O'Reilly in a lot of cases. But look at the Blues and some of their top guns last night. Robert Thomas didn't have a shot. Tarasenko didn't have a shot. Like These are the guys that have to be there for St. Louis. They have to go in game two. So um, that part was there. And then, you know, I, I actually don't think special teams are going to play a major factor in this series. I think it's a five on five series. Like they both are so good on the power play. They're going to score eventually. St. Louis did shut down all three chances for Colorado, but I don't see that being the big factor. I think it's going to be the, that third line for each team, second line that the mismatch, whichever team could do a better job of that will end up taking the series. And I still think Scott, I had St. Louis in six. It was, it's a gut feel pick. I thought St. Louis was red hot coming in. St. Louis lost their first game to Minnesota as well. So yeah, I think we're far from done with this one. Um, Coaching. There's a, I, I, I guess I, I should learn now not to be particularly surprised by what happens in Vegas. Um, But I got to tell you, I was still a little bit surprised that, you know, the, the, you know, Thanks for coming out to Pete DeBoer. And now all of a sudden Vegas is, is looking for a new coach. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of that team. And I don't know. I don't know what the plan is there, but it is fascinating, but it is, you know, it sets up sort of a, you know, there's a, a spider web kind of element to all of this because you tug on one side and it, it the reverberations may be way over here. But we know from our reporting, Frank Sirali confirmed this, uh, Barry Trotz interviewing in Winnipeg um, after he was dismissed by Lula Morello. Uh, Lane Lambert moves into that role as a head coach with the Islanders. Um, but the, the, the whole, there, is, there is a lot of shifting sand now in the coaching world mm-hmm. and some interesting, you know, like that Vegas job has to be pretty – like that, I have to assume that that Vegas job moves to the top of the existing heaps. I mean, with all due respect to Detroit and Philadelphia and even Winnipeg, in terms of a team that is more fully formed, like I, that team's, are they not a mortal lock to go back to the playoffs? Come on, they're going to the playoffs next year. And if you're a head coach to have an opportunity, you know, to fill in, you know, to go to a team, I, I would think Vegas would be pretty attractive, no? I'm not sold that they're a shoe in for playoffs next year. <laughs> okay. um, there's a lot of things up in the air. Mark Stone's having back surgery that they're hoping is going to correct his issue. If he's, if it doesn't, Oh baby, watch out. And their goaltending's up in the air. I mean, is I mean, Robin Leonard needs surgery. He's having surgery. You know, like there's, there's a lot going on there in Vegas, yeah. but to your point though, when you look at that rock roster, the way it's constructed and everybody will look at it and say, man, if they were healthy, they should have been there. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a lark because look down the road in LA with way less experience and just as many injured players and look what they did. Uh, Regardless, that job in Vegas will be coveted, but only by the right type of person. Yeah. Only by the type of person that's willing to gamble and know that the moment things go South, you're out of there. Yeah. I mean, you're gone. Like Pete, who are they going to find? That's a better coach than Pete DeBoer. Realistically. I mean, like I know Pete, listen, we say this, you know, Coaches have a lifespan. Pete DeBoer has a lifespan. Every coach has a lifespan. Okay. You get past two or three years as a coach, you did pretty damn well. Yeah. But I I just look at this being less based on 
the results and more based on what I think was communication and conflict. I, I just can't imagine that the way things played out at the end of the year with Robin Leonard and, you know, Pete DeBoer saying he's healthy, he's available. And Robin saying, I'm done. I'm, I can't, my body's, oh, you know, he didn't say this publicly, but like his body couldn't keep going yet. He still had to dress games for the team and that whole miscommunication. And then Pete DeBoer starting Robin Leonard and pulling him after one period and one goal against, and then saying, well, he's paid to start these games. Like I can't help but think Frank that Pete DeBoer wasn't the only person making decisions on who was starting a goal. I can't help but think that I've been a goalie. I've, I've been part of these situations, man. Like to me, that was just straight up Pete DeBoer saying, well, it's me or him. And I'm going to go with who I think gives us the best chance to win. And that's Logan Thompson. And, you know, to his, if that's the case, to his credit, like that's what a good coach should do. A good coach should stick to his guns. Um, But the way it was handled by the entire organization was just, I mean, it was a high school drama, man. It was a joke. It was a joke. And, and I think that that probably in my eyes did end up being it's me or him. And that may have been it. So I, I'm very curious to see who takes that job. I mean, Rick Tockett's always is mentioned, but he's got a great gig on TNT. Yeah. I mean, Tockett does have a house in Vegas. It would probably fit really well. I mean, yeah. the one thing I can guarantee, Scott, I'd like your evaluation on this, agree or disagree. I do not think Vegas is going to bring in anybody other than a hard ass as their head coach. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I think yes. And, and I, I, I totally agree with you. Like to me, this shines. We've talked about this. I've written about it. Like the, the, they the said in their post, the rose for this organization, you know, right? They've lost of, their identity. So a lot of crazy stuff going on. The Dodonoff trade and, you know, how management behaved there. I'm told that, you know, trying to pressure him to accept that trade to Anaheim. There's a lot of, you know, to me, that the light shines now on that organization at the top. And, and, and on Kelly McCrimmon, okay, it would, you know, you've made, you know, you fired Gerard Gallant, you, you know, you bring in Pete DeBoer, you, you all these things have happened. And uh, there's a, there's a high level of chaos there, which I, you know, maybe some people thrive in chaos. I, I think you look at organizations that are, that I considered the standard bearers. And I think of an organization like Tampa, um, it, there's consistency, and there's a certain rationale that exists within that. And, and, and I don't know that that exists in Vegas right now. And I think the pressure truly is on at the top. And this is a huge hire for Kelly McCrimmon, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, you know, that's no way. I don't, I don't care about the injuries. No way that team should have missed the playoffs. So, so at some point, the buck stopped for Pete DeBoer. You know where it stops next. And this is I'm his second you. head coach. Yeah. And this is a hard, it's, you know, like uh, I, I, so I, I, I love Barry Trotz anywhere. So to me, he, I love him in, in Manitoba, just, you know, me, I like a story that has a beginning and an end. He's from Manitoba. His roots are there. I, I think the jets are, I think they're, I think they're still in the window there, but mm-hmm. obviously need to make some, you know, some decisions and the coaching is, is paramount there. Um, I don't know what you like. What you, and again, I think Rick Tockett's going to be wherever he chooses to go. I think he is going to be exceptional. I think he's an exceptional coach. Vegas, man, it wouldn't surprise me. He leads them in, on a deep playoff run. I think the other team we're waiting to hear on Rick Bonus. I, I will. My sense is that's already been decided, and that there will be a new head coach in 
in, in Dallas. And that's another team, you know, that you don't have to start at the bottom, right? Like, right. again, Philadelphia, it, it, you know, that's a great, you know, his history there. They won't have trouble finding a coach, but they are way down the ladder in terms of their evolution. And Detroit, a little, you know, where are they? Uh, working for Steve Eisner would be great, but they're not there yet. Um, so it'll, I think it's going to be interesting to see how these high-end coaching vacancies and these high-end coaching possibilities like Barry Trotz and Rick Tockett, how that shakes down. Does that make sense? Yeah, and what, you, what you're really describing is that it's got to be the right fit. Yeah. When you're objective, when you're in a position in your career where you can be choosy about the jobs you take, like a Barry Trotz or a Rick Tockett, you're not going to just wade into deep water without knowing what's in it. Yeah. Like, you you know, and, you know, I think about you know, someone like Tockett, he's going to want to have a good team. Like he's, he doesn't want to go coach the Arizona Coyotes again. No way. Like if he's going to coach again to walk away from this incredible job he's got on TNT, he's doing, he is doing fantastic at that job at the desk. Like if you're going to walk away from that to coach again, which of course is passion, which is more money. It's everything. It's what you want. It's got to be a scenario where you can win and be successful. Yeah. And that team in Vegas can do that. They can. Um, so I think that's one case. And I think for trots, like you look at the jets, you look at Dallas, even like to me, those would be great options for him, yeah. both of them. Uh, and Barry trots has never been afraid of a challenge. Yeah. Never. And I, I just don't think he wants the challenge of the flyers or the black Hawks or the red wings right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I think, yeah. I think he's good. So yeah. um, that one's good. And then even, you know, flip into lane Lambert, we, we've kind of, I feel like this goes under the radar because it was so high profile that DeBoer got fired the same day, but you know, Lane Lambert's been on the radar for the better part of almost a decade now, knocking on the head coaching door. And he's been a very trots. Um, I won't say disciple, but he has been within the trots camp for a very long time. Um, I had him as assistant coach in Milwaukee years ago when he was yeah. under Claude Noel uh, before bumping up to Nashville. And it's a weird hire to me because Lamorello wanted a new voice and he got a voice that was already there. Yep. But I can also see it from the perspective that Lambert is a very good communicator and someone who the players, I think, you know, gravitate towards. Yep. So maybe that's the direction that, that Lou wanted to take. And, and I don't see that as a bad decision, but it's, it's certainly kind of within the same realm of trots leaving Washington and, and them going to Todd Reardon and things yes. not working very well. So yeah. um, there's risk there, but, but I'm also very happy for Lane because he's worked a long time for this and, and he deserves the opportunity to show what he can do at that level. Yeah. It, it is interesting when you, when you see these coaches who come sort of from, you know, I think of Brad Larson in Columbus, yeah. um, you know, and a little different dynamic there. And I, I really like the job that Brad did in Columbus. And, and now that team is in a different part of its evolution, then certainly when Todd Reardon took over in Washington and where the, you know, he was coach of the defending Stanley cup champions and you know, what it just, it wasn't a great fit. It just, it wasn't. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, he, Todd goes back to Pittsburgh and the players in Pittsburgh, the defensive players there speak so highly of Todd Reardon. I think it was Mike Matheson who was talking about, you know, how important Todd was to him in terms of his growth. Um, you know, it, it takes, it is a different dynamic. And, and when you know, maybe it's a benefit to know the players, but you're right. You, you're a new voice within an old, you know, you, Lane Lambert's been there. So can he assert himself in a way that is meaningful and in a way that meets what Lou's expectations are? And listen to me, the, that pressure's still on Lou Lamorello to put a roster on the ice 
that can compete. And, and frankly, yeah. I think he's failed on some levels to do that. Um, you know, in this past season, I think there've been mistakes made at the organizational level. He'll have to correct them if the team's going to play differently. And then Lane Lambert will have to put that into practice. So no different any other team, those relationships are all uh, symbiotic. So, and I'm with you, Lane Lambert's, he's such a good person and deserves this opportunity. And I hope he has all kinds of success. So good for him. I agree. And, you know, we're kind of lost in the mix of thinking, you know, where does Pete DeBoer go? Does he go right back into coaching? And I I always think that I'm more pragmatic about these things than a lot of coaches because coaches coach, man, they just, they can't stay away from the game. I remember when everybody thought that, you know, Ken Hitchcock was done coaching after he was relieved to duties in Dallas and was supposed to kick up to a management role and, and, you know, ride that magic carpet off into the sunset. And within a year, he goes to Edmonton. <laughs> they just... It, when it's in your blood to coach, you, you are who you yourself. are. That's right. And like, I mean, I thought Trots would probably be happy to collect, you know, man, take a year off, enjoy your kids. And you haven't done that. You haven't taken that for 20 something years. You just did all the COVID pandemic. And well, here he is interviewing with the Jets. And so um, different strokes for different folks, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. Um, It'll be interesting. I think the teams that'll be really interesting who they go with are Chicago, Detroit, um, and Philadelphia, because are you really going to get a big name guy to come in and make difference there? Are you going to go with somebody progressive again? Like Chicago tried that with Jeremy Colladin and didn't work out. Like I'm not sure how to read those. And I, but I don't think Philadelphia is a place that wants an up and coming coach. I'm, curious i wonder about chris knoblock's a guy i wonder about in hartford yeah. you know like he's yeah. been in L- in philly's organization before maybe he's knocking on the door i don't know but yeah. uh where does torts even factor i could see torts in vegas in a heartbeat yeah. so yeah so uh, he, a team that's a team that's lost their identity i mean yeah. <laughs> he's an identity guy see, here's that's what it. before we before we get to uh, bob stouffer and we're going to close out with some battle of alberta talk but how about this? This is this would be my this would be glorious. So Pete DeBoer, Paul Maurice, co-coaches in Detroit with the Red Wings, co-coaches. Both those guys cut their coaching teeth across the river in Windsor. They're longtime pals. Just how about that symmetry? I that's a, I want to see that. Co- we have, have we had one in? Does it have? There, has there been? I know there were co GMs. I was going to say we saw Brett Hall in Dallas. That's right. That didn't work out so well. <laughs> but I want to see co coaches Paul Maurice, Pete DeBoer. That team. If that happened, that team goes to the playoffs next year. That's my prediction. You know, I don't see it being co head coach, but with the way Paul Maurice described this season and his feelings towards it. And, and to me, it just seemed like he was burnt out to a certain yeah. extent. I mean, you almost wonder if he'd be willing to take a shotgun seat next to Pete DeBoer, if he really wanted to, you know, you yeah. can't help. I mean, those two have so much history. They go back so far. Yeah. Um, that'd be, that'd be cool. I, I like your outside the box thinking, but we also saw a three headed monster in Philly recently with <laughs> Vigneault, Terry and, and yo, and that one didn't work either. So yeah, um, yeah right. man, I, I'm all for the up and comers. I'd like to see someone like even a Jay Leach who's in Seattle, get a job. I think he was an up and coming guy that could do a great, uh, great things with an organization given the chance. So we'll have plenty to discuss as these start to roll out throughout the summer, Scott. Good stuff. All right. As promised, 
We'll be talking with Bob Stouffer of the Edmonton Oilers in just a moment, but this gives us the great opportunity. It's almost like a pause in your day when you consider what we're going to eat next. And this is a good time to remind everybody that DoorDash is the proud sponsor of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Restaurants and more delivered right to your door. How are you feeling about that, my friend? I feel great, especially considering we have a place called Nudo House down the road that happens to go through DoorDash. And their ramen is fantastic, and it saved our butts once this week. So, as always, ding! <laughs> DoorDash to the rescue, man. They, it's my go-to app whenever we're in need, and that's usually at least once a week here in the McKenna household. All right. This is one of those great episodes of the suitcase inscribed where we actually absolutely save the best for last. And Bob Stoffer. <laughs> Don't tell Colby player. that. We had Colby Armstrong on to start. So well, no, but you know, with all due respect to Colby, he he can take it. <laughs> he, he'd understand. But Bob Stoffer, longtime voice of the Edmonton Oilers, joining us from downtown Calgary, getting ready for game one of the Battle of Alberta. And actually, Colby was talked about it off the top of the uh the episode, Bob, we talked about these four series in the second round. And listen, the attention is right where you're at in Calgary. I wonder, is there a way to describe, you know, the, the vibe and what, you know, what it's been like since game seven, the Oilers win over the Kings. And of course, Calgary winning in game seven over Dallas to set this up. What's it like for you? I mean, you, you must have been waiting for this for a long time, too. Well, I'm from Edmonton, so uh, and I'm going to date myself. I worked the Memorial Cup in 2001 when Colby was playing for the Red Deer Rebels. I was doing font cord and stats with uh, Sportsnet at that time. Uh, and so, it, you know, it was really – it was in Regina that year, I remember, and uh, Red Deer had a pretty good club in a very specific Sutter style of play, uh, which we're going to undoubtedly get to, uh, even though it's a, a different brother. But the reality is, you know, fans have been waiting for this – you know, for over 30 years. I mean, there's entire generations of Flames and Oilers fans that have never seen the Battle of Alberta. And then there's a guy like myself or Mark Spector. We grew up with this. Like, we we watched this thing firsthand. And, um, you know, when you didn't play in the National Hockey League or you didn't play, uh, you know, lack of speed, talent, agility, coordination, toughness, character, and discipline, just a couple of those factors to play in the 12-team WHL, Scott, uh, you have to rely on other things if you're going to do, be a color analyst in the NHL. So memory is one of the things uh, that some people would suggest I might have. And, you know, I just, I, I think of, I think the Oilers and the Calgary Flames were the two best teams from 1984 until basically 1991. Like, I think they were the two best teams in the league. Um, you know, Calgary under Bob Johnson, and I worked the 91 Canada Cup when Bob was there. As a as a twenty five year old broadcaster, and I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, what a the guy was just a brilliant guy and a strategist, and the Flames built a team at that time to sort of oppose the Oilers were the, the team with greater skill. They had the Hall of Famers, but the Flames, no one in Edmonton ever underestimated Calgary. And for the Oilers player, every single Oilers player, we had Wayne Gretzky on our show on Monday. We're gonna have Kevin Lowe on today. We'll have Craig Simpson on Friday. Like those guys. They define themselves on how they played against Calgary. That is how you were defined. So extend the metaphor for the fans. You know, for the fans, it's, you know, it's it's kind of like if you're a fan of the Alabama Crimson Tide, which I am, yeah. you're defined, you know, you win that Iron Bowl. You beat Auburn. That's all there is to it. You know, yeah, you're supposed to beat Georgia when you play them because you don't play them every year, but you play Auburn and LSU every year. And that's, for me to sort of explain it to Americans at times, 
that's kind of the, the you know, the, the perspective I would give. There was nothing like the hockey in uh, the 1980s. It was high scoring. It was, uh, you know, brilliant and skilled. It was also dangerous and scary. You know, like it was really cutthroat. The 1991 series was rollerball on ice. Okay. That's what it was. It was no country for old men hockey. Those teams kicked the living snot out of each other. And as a casual 25 year old observer who only had one chin back then, uh, you know, I loved it. I loved it for, I knew when I watched that series, why I never made it to major duty because I thought to myself, this is what it takes to play at this level. So I think the fans are going to get a part of it. And it's about time for this generation of fans as well and this generation of players to experience it. Stoff, you made a great comparison about college football, and it instantly made me think of my experience at college hockey. And I, going to St. Lawrence, anybody who's been around that side of the nation or that side of college hockey, you know that we had to beat Clarkson. I mean, arch rivals beyond belief. It's kind of the same deal. We were 10 miles down the road as opposed to the several hours between Calgary and Edmonton, but you would hang your hat on that. It wasn't even what you did during the season almost didn't matter as much as whether you beat Clarkson or not. I mean, I met my wife after we beat Clarkson one night. You know what I mean? Those are the things that matter and register. Um, looking at this series, let's let's dig in on the details here. I mean, these two teams, Edmonton, Calgary, they, they split during the regular season, two games apiece. Uh, and I think it could be easy to categorize it by the star power. Is it really Johnny Gaudreau versus Connor McDavid? Or is it, you know, Dry's Idol versus Kachuk? But is it really just the star power stuff or is this going to be, is this series going to be one within the depth of each team? Well, Cal, I mean, look, Calgary's got a real good team, Mike, like they do. And I, I, I don't think it's the star power because I don't think, I do think the orders are a star driven team uh, with greater depth, which is why they have a better chance to win now than they did a couple of years ago. Uh, but when I look at Calgary, I, part of their identity to me there's a couple coaches in the league that can really suppress shots. And you as a former goaltender know this. Hmm. If you face fewer shots, you have a better chance to win. That's It's it's that simple. Yeah. And Daryl Sutter and Mike Babcock are two coaches that know how to suppress shots. So Calgary's had a different identity since Daryl came aboard. They've been a tougher team to play against. They are physically more imposing. They've got the tough I – I know Nashville in the league of fighting majors. Calgary has the toughest team. Nobody's got a tougher – I mean, Calgary's sitting there with Lucic and Richie up front – you know, uh, Gabranson and Zadorov on defense. And that just empowers all other players. Like there was a time where Kachuk wouldn't, Kachuk will fight anybody. There was a time when he wouldn't necessarily do that. Now he will. Um, and so they're, even, even their little guys play big because they've got all that other support. So it's hard to get shots against them. They're tough. Their top line shot the lights out this year. You know, I, I know you guys both have some time for advanced analytics. And Scott, the Calgary Flames top line, when they were on the ice, all three forwards, the shooting percentage for the team was at five on five at 13%. That is unheard of this year. You know, like Connor McDavid was at 8.4% this year. The Oilers shot the puck at 8.4% when he was on the ice. So they had they had a lot of things go well for them this year. But I there was the easiest bet, uh, and I said it all last summer, you know, because the Oilers weren't on Jacob Markstrom too. He had a 904 save percentage. Mm-hmm. The easiest bet out there was under Daryl Sutter that that was going to bounce back. What I didn't see was three guys having 40 goals on one line. But again, when you look at the on-ice shooting percentage for the team when those guys were out there, maybe it all makes sense. So they're good. They are deeper than Edmonton. 
You can make an argument. They have better goaltending than Edmonton. However, head-to-head, Mike Smith has, over the last two years, performed quite well against Jacob Markstrom. Mm-hmm. And the Oilers have the X factor. And they have the most advanced dynamic player, frankly, I think we've ever seen. And a guy that elevated from the third period of game five and then in game six and game seven against L.A. And that's Connor McDavid. You can't underestimate what he might be capable of doing. Yeah. I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about Connor because it's, you know, both these teams have, you know, had so much to prove. And, and I think for both those teams, critical wins um, against lesser opponents that pushed them to seven games. I and mean, it's interesting that both these teams, you know, traveled the same kind of route to get here. But, but I'm, I'm with you, and I wonder, you see him every day, but I, I'm not sure I've seen anyone play uh, the last couple of games like Connor McDavid has played, and is, is there a way to describe it and what that means to the, to the rest of that roster and what the impact it has up and down that lineup to see him doing what he's been doing now for the last couple of games. Well, Scott, you know, I know there was a narrative out there a couple of years ago when Edmonton lost to Chicago that Connor and Leon were going to have to change their game. And I know who pushed that narrative, and I don't agree with that narrative, okay? I'm telling you right now, the Oilers had some passengers that didn't want to play in the bubble, uh, and they did not have a deep team. They were limited, and Chicago actually had more depth at forward. Yeah. And Chicago had that experience in guile. Uh, to at least handle an inexperienced and, frankly, a little bit immature of a team, which the others were at that time. So I didn't buy what some people were selling, but that's if people allowed to have their opinions. Um, what's happened now is now you have Kane and Hyman that weren't even here last year. Like To put things in perspective for Edmonton, last year Devin Shore was in the Oilers' top nine and Chris Russell was in the top four in defense in their triple overtime game against Winnipeg. Yeah. You know, Shore's a healthy scratch in the first round of the playoffs because Edmonton has a far superior depth up front. So Edmonton is a deeper team. Chris Russell's playing as a number seven defenseman. The Oilers have a deeper team than they've had, but McDavid is also taking his game to another level. And I I think that's fair, uh, but I I always, and I guess I'll relay this story. So the Oilers put Chris Knobloch in Erie. Okay, you know, I think you know the story. Uh, They worked out an agreement where, they assisted uh, Sherry Basson during some difficult financial times. Uh, Robbie Fatorik had a family tragedy, had to leave the team. And Chris Knobloch had been fired by Kootenai. And he ended up being available. And Kevin Lowe was like, we got to get that guy in Erie, help Erie out. And Chris became the first major junior coach in history to have four straight 50-plus win seasons. I remember Chris called me on the second day of practice with the Erie Otters. And he said, Stoff, this guy can do stuff. Like he had, as an example, uh, Sam Reinhardt and Kootenai. He said, this guy can do stuff that I don't think I've ever seen anybody can do. And, you know, he's two years away from being drafted. And then at the draft, when the Oilers ended up winning the lottery, uh, I remember meeting Chris was down there uh, interviewing with a couple different teams. And he just said, you're, you're going to see stuff in year four or five. And you're going to go, I don't think I've ever seen him do that before. And you know what? That's, got, that's come to fruition. That has happened. He has made moves or made plays, and you're like, it, it is it is unbelievable to watch on a nightly basis. Like, I know, Mike, you were down at ice level, mm-hmm. and the Oilers had a flat performance. You were there for game four. Make sure you don't do any games in this series and against, <laughs> against L.A. But even, I mean, there are times that you watch him on transition or you watch him make a cut or a reverse pivot, and you're like, I don't think anybody else in the world can do that. It's scary. Mm-hmm. You know, when I watch 
McDavid, one, I'm just happy I never faced him in live game action because I was poor enough and he would have really made me look bad. But uh, I, I think, though, and I talked to somebody really close to him recently about how just driven he is to be the best in every aspect. It's not just offensively. Like his back pressure in this series and all, yeah. really all season has been at a level I haven't seen before. His tenacity on the puck. Like McDavid plays a a heavy game for me without having to run people over. He's heavy on the stick and he retrieves so well. Uh, and, and you're right at ice level. It's, it's incredible to watch that play out. Um, looking at something for me, that's an X factor in this series is health. I mean, Leon Dreisaitl yeah. has been battling lower body injury. Uh, and even the flames, you look at Tanov now in the fence, maybe out for, foreseeable future. We're not sure there. Where do you see this factoring in? And do you think Dreisaitl is going to spend most of the series at center, or do you think he'll get shifted over to the, onto the wing with McDavid? I think Dreisaitl has shown uh, that he's got the pain threshold of a cadaver. Mm. You know, like he's, he's, he's <laughs> tough. Not like, you know what? There's guys that can play through injuries and there are guys that can't. He's yeah. a guy that can play through an injury. He already was hurt coming in. He's, he's been dealing with a couple things. Uh, you know, his his face-off percentage dropped precipitously in the final quarter of the season. So that's a hint as to where one of the challenges was for him uh, because he was, you know, and, and that's part of McDavid's game that's dramatically improved. But they were both basically 54% this year, except Leon was at 56 at one point. So he came down a bit. Uh, I see Leon, to answer your question, Mike, I think he's going to play most of the series at left wing. I, I just think that, you know, he's... If you take a look at what happened with Mikey Anderson, I didn't like it. I thought it was kind of a cheap play. Uh, if I was with LA, I would have been fine with it. It would have been called gamesmanship. Um, but it looked like he rolled his ankle. It looks like a high ankle sprain. So, you, you know, I, I think that he's a little bit challenged to, to play down the middle. Uh, he might take some draws, but I think he's going to end up on left wing. And what Jay Woodcroft did by deploying Hyman, and Kane together without a center and then rotating McDavid or Nugent Hopkins or Ryan McLeod or Derek Ryan through there. I thought that was brilliant. And I think that was a factor as to why Edmonton had success in game six and game seven against LA. Yeah. Bob, I thought you, before we let you go here and get on with your real work, um, but I thought you made an interesting point in, 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 you know, putting this in some sort of context. And, and, and there was a time when both these teams measured their own, worth or their successes and failures against each other. What do you think's on the line for both these teams in this series, given both these teams' recent histories? Well, it's, I, you alluded to it earlier, Scott, like there's a definite prove it factor for both organizations. I got to tell you, Calgary is really well run. They've got a great American Hockey League team. Uh, they draft players with identity. You have to, they see competitiveness as a skill. And so they have players that have got edge uh, in their on their minor league team. Uh, they've got an excellent goaltending prospect coming and undersized and Dustin Walt. Like they've done a good job and they haven't had the benefit of, you know, Edmonton didn't win one lottery. They won two because they won the lottery when they got dry settle it, you know, for Oilers fans, thank God that Buffalo drafted five Europeans uh, in the three years, uh, you know, uh, when, when Tim Murray rolls in and decides to pass on dry settle and ends up taking Sam Reinhardt. So, um, they are different or Edmonton's depth is coming. Like they're, they're the orders are going to have, the orders are going to have a huge defense in two or three years. You know, they, they could have a defense a bit like Tampa right now. They're sort of moving to that. I think Calgary's a little bit further along in their maturation. That said, the orders, the orders to me do have the ultimate X factor, and that's 97. So it would mean a ton for either uh, either organization and either team. As you both know, 
Um, Stockton eliminated Bakersfield from the uh, American Hockey League playoffs. The games were all close, and Dustin Wolf went head to head against Stuart Skinner. Both you know both those guys will probably be in the NHL next year mm-hmm. at a, as backups uh, at minimum. Um, both teams have some good. The Oilers have a couple of defense prospects. Philip Broberg will be on the Oilers full time next season as well, and it's going to be. I think we're going to go in. I believe we will see. And I know LA has got a lot of prospects and they've got some cap space and Vegas is Vegas, but I think you're going to see Edmonton and Calgary being, you know, two of the teams in the Pacific division for the next five years. That's my expectation. And, uh, and I think Calgary needs to capitalize now too, because they've got Kachuk and they've got Goodrow. Goodrow's a UFA, Kachuk's an RFA. Can they get them both re-signed? Right. I don't know. I don't know if they can get both those guys uh, re-signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kachuk, I hope for the sake of the Battle of Alberta, he stays. I wish there were more Canadian players like him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Don't get me wrong. There's times that, you know, I haven't been happy with him at times, but uh, from the time that he took the fight with uh, Zach Cassian back in 2020 in January, from that point on, I'm like, all right, good for him. He'll fight anybody. Yeah. And uh, the guy's a hell of a player. And he's the type of player you need in any rivalry. So, you know, I think both organizations, maybe I'm optimistic, but I think both organizations, I've got a lot of respect for how Calgary does things. Uh, you know, when they're telling me about Oliver Shillington two years ago and he makes it now, that's a sign they know. Yeah. Reminds me a bit of um, Dallas had some guys like Doug Overton was a pro scout. He knew players around in, in the American League. And Calgary's got some guys like that. Uh, working for them as well. So, uh, you know, I, I, again, I think Edmonton and Calgary are headed to a good place, and I think it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be fantastic for the fans, and they deserve it because they've suffered for a long time but in both cities. <laughs> Stoff, I think what I just heard you say is that we need more players from St. Louis in the NHL, and not just <laughs> Unbelievable. because you've got Matthew Kachuk, you've got Brady Kachuk, you've got Trent Frederick out in Boston. Okay, Luke Cunning can play pretty hard. We have Brandon Bully, Cam Jace. We got toughness in St. Louis, and there's more coming along with the skill. Uh, we won't lump Clayton Keller into that mix, pure skill. But uh, in any case, last thing here, obviously big changes for Edmonton this year when Jay Woodcroft took over, and there's yeah. been a lot of talk about the empowerment of the players. What does that really mean? Well, first of all, I think Dave Tippett and Jim Playford did a good job. Like, you know, the Oilers penalty killing was a disaster before those guys got here. Uh, they went from ninth to first in the power play and from 30th to second in BK. Where they struggled was five on five. And in fairness to, to Dave and Jim for a couple of years, I just don't think they had good enough bottom six forwards to be an effective five on five team. And part of that was cap related. Um, I, I think that maybe a younger voice, a different voice, uh, a guy that grew up watching, first of all, Woodcroft had previously coached, you know, Connor, Leon, RNH, and Darnell as an associate with the Oilers. And then he also had guys like Bouchard and Ryan McLeod and Yamamoto in the minors. He really knew Edmonton's personnel, and Dave Manson was a big part of this. Dave's a different personality than Jim Playfair, and he knew, and that, that's why I'm quite confident and bullish about the likes of Broberg next season and maybe, you know, Nima Linen. Or if it's a day hard eight a year, a year from now, you know, one guy's six, five and a half, one guy's six, seven. Like the order's going to have some trees on D in the future. And then part of that's Manson. So to me, it was a combination of those two coaches, a little bit different voice. 
Uh, and then changing the, maybe some additional minutes for some of the bottom six forwards, playing a little bit more. Derek Ryan playing right wing instead of center. He's surprisingly a little bit for me, been the guy that's been the most outspoken on it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, success is success. And so when the results are there, you know, the owners were hovering at 550, say uh, winning percentage under, under Tippett when the change was made. And Jay's been at 725. And so, and I do think, I, I think maybe Jay's today's coach. He's touched all the bases on the way up. He's worked like, I don't care what anybody says about Mike Babcock. Mike Babcock's a good coach. And, uh, and it doesn't mean you can't learn maybe not what not to do based on some of the experiences you've had along the way too. But, you know, Todd, Todd McClellan's a really good coach. Jay worked with those guys and mm-hmm. he learned, and then he got to apply his own craft. And I, and I think that, and he's got his own identity. I'll, I'll leave you with this. Uh, my broadcast partner, Jack Michaels, the last time we were in Calgary, he asked Daryl Sutter, he said, you know, Daryl, you won the two cups in LA. Do you see any similarities between this flame squad and those teams in LA? And Daryl said, waited about three or four seconds and said, nope. Next question. The contrast of that is, you know, Jay talking about how much he loves his team and how, you know, how much growth and, uh, you know, he's looking forward to bringing these guys along. And, you know, we've got, we've got really good players here and it's my job to get the most out of it. It's, it's just a, a different, you know, but I, th- I think we're watching a guy take the next step in his own personal journey as a coach. And I think it's resonated well uh, with all of the owners players and got them all engaged. And I think that's part of the reason why they're having some success. And Bob, great stuff. And it's I pre both Mike and I are appreciative of your time on a, on a busy it's, I think it's fair to say a historic day, this restarting mm-hmm. of the battle of Alberta. I, I hope the series goes well for you. And I know the fans are well served and, and you're getting a chance to, to be part of history, my friend. So good luck to you and enjoy every minute of it. Scott, Mike, anytime you guys are uh, stuck and can't get uh, somebody better out of Edmonton, you let me know. Okay. <laughs> you got it. You're, okay. you're, you're firmly number seven on the depth chart. Thanks. Fair, fair. Story of my life. Thanks guys. <laughs> Mike, the, uh, the only thing I'm disappointed that I can't turn on the TV right now to see puck drop for the battle of Alberta. So it's, it's going to be a ton of fun and, what a what a what a great way to set things up! As always, a ton of fun. What a, what a great uh, what a great episode! I'm I'm, I'm uh, very I'm excited. This was great. Like I'm smiling ear to ear. My face hurts. I'm smiling so hard because uh, I mean, Stoff set up that series so well between Edmonton and Calgary, and it, it made us. It made me feel like I was boots on ground there, seeing it happen. And I'm really am excited for those fan bases in the entire province, and you know, even having. Colby on earlier, some of the things he touched on about the other series, like yeah. it's, you get down to eight teams and they're all good, Scott. And every night you turn on that TV. And the reason we watch sports is because something might happen that we would never expect that we can never see anywhere else. Exactly. And you know, it will, it will play out. So I can't wait for it. This has been an I think this might've been our best episode. We say that all the time, but this yeah. was awesome. I yeah, had a I ton of fun uh, and I can't wait to watch these games this evening. All right, brother. Let's uh, the sets a bar pretty high for, high for next week, but that's You're a good right. way to be. So enjoy it, my friend, and stay safe. You got it. Good work on your part, Scott. We'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to the Suitcase and the Scribe, a member of the Nation Network of podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.